Welcome to More Devotedly, a podcast for people who see the arts as a force for positive, progressive change. I'm Douglas Dietrich. This is Volume 4, Episode 2. Andre Middleton is Executive Director of Friends of Noise. Friends of Noise seeks to foster healing and growth for the creative youth in our community via the arts, and they do so by creating opportunities for young people not just to perform, but also to learn the technical and the business side of music. Andre and I first met several years ago at a DIY bookkeeping workshop for arts organizations hosted by Portland's Regional Arts and Culture Council. We haven't been in touch since then, but I wanted to reach out to him because of a change.org petition that his organization had started. It was seeking to direct funding from the $15 million aid package recently passed by the Oregon State Legislature to help create an all-ages music venue focused on BIPOC youth in Portland. They discovered the funds were restricted in specific ways by the federal government that make that use of the funds impossible. So they moved on from this initiative for now, but this all-ages venue is still a primary goal for the organization. So rather than talking about this emergency funding allocation, we talked about the organization's work and how the young people Andre works with are being affected by the pandemic and by the protests in Portland, and his views on this unique place and time as a black man coming originally from New York City. Here's the episode. And just a quick note before we get started, BIPOC is an acronym standing for Black, Indigenous, and Other People of Color. Andre, welcome to More Devotedly. I'm glad to have you on here and looking forward to this conversation. And I thought it would be great for you to kind of introduce yourself and, and Friends of Noise and what you're working on. Thanks, Douglas. I really appreciate your invitation. My name is Andre Middleton. I'm one of the founding members and current executive director of a nonprofit here in Portland, Oregon called Friends of Noise. Our mission is to facilitate healthy growth for creative youth through performance, through professional development workshops, and by hopefully finding them paid gigs, even though they're minors. Why was it young people especially? that you wanted to work with in this way? Well, um, back in 2015, I was working at the Regional Arts and Culture Council, and I was um, in charge of producing a community engagement event called The Happening, which was a state of the state for the music industry. While RAC provides a lot of resources to a variety of artists, independent musicians were just under the radar. You know I mean? They provided general operating support to like to the symphony. But if you were just, you know, a guitarist playing in a honky tonk or, you know, a, a hip hop artist playing in a basement, there wasn't much access to Rack's resources. So right. when I produced this event, I have a big background in live music in the context of just being a fan. I was going to clubs when I was 16 and 17 back in New York. Um, when I moved out here, I enjoyed going to places like, you know, Pine Street and Satyricon and La Luna. So, you know, having a vibrant and um, thriving independent music scene was important to me. And at the time, I had a 13-year-old young girl, and I realized I can't go see shows that I'd like to see with her. You know, mm. the, the venues that were accessible, that were pretty much all ages at the time were, you know, large things happening at like the Moda Center or Memorial Coliseum. You know, it was much harder to have, you know, her join me 
at a small venue in town because of OLCC regulations. Right. So that was kind of the genesis. So I, since I was running this event, I got to pick the topics and I got to pick the, uh, the, the speakers. So I kind of, you know, slid this in saying, hey, let's talk about the lack of volunteer spaces here in Portland. Because about six months prior, there was a very popular RLH spot called Backspace, hmm. which is right downtown in the bus mall, easy to get to. And they had closed down. And I don't want to say through no fault of their own because I don't know all the details, but I think a large part of it was the fire marshal had instituted some new policy regarding sprinkler systems. And that actually had a detrimental impact on a variety of clubs, not just this one in particular. Right. And there's also been the unreinforced masonry regulation that's been happening lately that Music Portland has been talking a lot about. And a big part of that, in all fairness, is is that, you know, like many cities across the country, the arts entertainment infrastructure is usually in the heart of downtown, you know, and that's right. where older buildings are, you know, the buildings closer to the river, you know, the building, the buildings closer to commerce. I look forward to a day where there's more arts infrastructure in the surrounding communities. Portland is an example whether it's Hillsboro, whether it's Montevilla, whether it's North Portland, whether it's Kearns. And I think, you know, that you're right, that's going to be expensive in retrofitting or building new buildings. And I think that's something, unfortunately, as a nation, we're wrestling with how do we, how do we support infrastructure building, whether it's, you know, bridges, roads, you know, and the like. Sure, of course. And do you kind of see that approach maybe of like letting a thousand flowers bloom as being kind of a more effective way to encourage youth artists and other independent artists? Oh, I do 100%. You know, when we started Friends of Noise, our immediate aspiration was to get some sort of venue and we couldn't afford it. So Mm -hmm. put a pin in that and we became much more of an itinerant operation. So we bought all of our gear to be mobile and we taught our young people how to use it so that they could use it in their communities. So We've put shows in Portland, all over Portland, from St. John's to Beaverton to Gresham. And that's really been a help for us because we've been able to connect with lots of different audiences. A big part of what we do also is teach the young people how to produce their own shows. Back to your Thousand Flowers, I think that's hopefully the future because we're by teaching kids how to run a PA, how to book a band. Maybe we can go back to that, you know, 1960s, 70s garage band aesthetic where people are putting on shows in their neighborhoods and their people are coming to see them. And maybe we can just expand on that a little bit by not forcing people to have to either take public transportation or deal with parking to come all the way downtown to see art and especially art that reflects their community. Right. You know, it's interesting that we're that we're kind of approaching the subject in this way now um, because I was the reason I, I wanted to talk to you, you kind of right at this moment was because I saw that this petition that, that you had put out that, that was, was about trying to direct some of some of the money that's been allocated by the state, which came from the federal government as coronavirus relief, to earmark some of that money to create a, a, a venue that's kind of meant specifically as a home for young BIPOC folks that are involved in the arts. First, I'll ask you maybe if, if you're feeling like there's any traction there. And then also like maybe let's skip that step too. And let's say you can wave a magic wand and you instantly have enough money in the bank account to create this venue and you can do whatever you want. And I'm curious if you, you know, would you still do that? To answer the first part of your question, we did, we still have, and we did get some traction out of that effort. 
due to my naivete, I didn't realize that the money from the federal government that was earmarked for the CARES had to be used on pandemic-related shortcomings. And it could not be put in escrow or put into a bucket for future use. So that money has to be used by venues who, you know, have lost ticket sales and who are still paying rent in, in utilities and insurance. And that money has to be used by December 2020. So completely understand why that didn't work out for us. But what it did do, and I appreciate you bringing it up, it, it started a conversation hmm. around the lack of diversity in the venues in that are currently here in Portland, the lack of diversity in the employees that they end up hiring and nurturing and developing. You know, I mean, right now to become a booker or a talent buyer at pretty much any club in the country, you've got to start somewhere. And that first start might be running security. And that, then the next start might be becoming a grip and being loading and doing all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, or it might be because you're a bartender. And you're in a band and, you know, someone goes on tour and there's an opening. Um, by and large, BIPOC people are not integrated into that flow, into that pipeline of sorts. So to answer the second question, yes, if I did have, you know, a pot of gold in the rainbow, yes, our goal is to build a venue that is more than a venue, but it really is a community-based art center that realizes the value in developing youth on their path to adulthood in a way that gives them opportunities into a music ecosystem that hasn't done a very good job of that. So when we started French and Noise, the grand vision was at the time to become roommates with a variety of other arts organizations. You know, it could be dance, it could be theater, it could be poetry. And we had hoped that this space would have a very modular aspect to it. So, you know, we'd have a black box or a white box theater and any bit of art could be in that space. Um, That's still the goal. That is still aspirational. But now we're looking at it. Hmm. You know, if we're teaching these young people how to run sound and if we're teaching them how to book and we're teaching them how to do graphics and promotion, how are we formalizing that process so that they can take those living skills and they can take those career building skills to other people and say, yes, I've been doing sound for Friends of Noise for the past three years. I've got that experience. Now, for a lot of young people, they get that experience out of college. You know, they go off to college and they form, you know, they get on the radio station or they form a theater. But there are a lot of kids who are going to a college of that, of that with those kind of resources right now isn't in the cards for them. So how are we filling in that gap? How are we creating that opportunity and giving them really hands-on experience at the same time and paying them? Since we're a nonprofit, we raise money from grants, from fundraisers and donations. And it's a point of pride that we pay all of our musicians and all of our sound engineers for their time. And, you know, I, I, it's not a living wage, you know, they're all, most of them are teenagers, but, you know, it's our aspiration that, you know, if they're earning, you know, 50, 60, maybe a hundred bucks a show from us, that when they are in their mid to late twenties and, you know, they're playing a cafe or, or, or a coffee shop, they say, no, you have to pay me because I've been getting paid for Friends of Noise since I was 16. How has your work changed during this time, you know, with the pandemic? And then, of course, also as the Black Lives Matter movement has come to the forefront again. And, and I'm curious, like, how has that changed the world, both kind of for you and the folks you're working with, and then also, you know, the young people that you're working with as well? 
At the beginning of the pandemic, it was, there was a lot of panic going around. You know, the last show that we did was on March 4th. I mean, we called it March Sadness, you know, who knew how pathetic that would be. And that was produced by, you know, three youth bands who just said, hey, Andre, we need, we want to put on a show. And we did it. And, you know, who, who knew that would be the last one we've done in a while? A side project of what we do is that we actually produce events for other people. And mm-hmm. we were actually contracted by the Trailblazers and by Mercy Corps to provide sound and artists to perform at some events of theirs. So that was money. In fact, one of the checks was already mailed and we we had to turn that back. So we lost some revenue and exposure for our young people. For the first, you know, March and April, I didn't do a whole lot. We have a radio show on X-Ray FM, one of our local radio stations. And I was still doing that show. And that show is actually programmed by teenagers themselves where they're the DJs. So that was something that we were still doing. And I thought about how do I expand on this? You know, how do I figure out a way of making this bigger? So we started actually co-hosting with teenagers via Zoom, where they would submit a playlist and I would interview them as we listened to their songs in between their songs. Hmm. So that was kind of an expansion. So that was a lot of fun. So that was a workaround because X-Ray FM has some very specific training that they want their DJs to go through, i.e., you know, FCC and, you know, working their board and stuff like that. And since we couldn't get into the studio because of the pandemic, I ended up being technically the producer and the youth was my guest. So that was something we started doing. That was a lot of fun. Last year, we worked with another local nonprofit called City Repair. And we were looking for a way of activating young people creatively and issue oriented activism. And we were actually gotten a couple of grants to do a, almost like a team Ted talk event that we had planned for mid June, where we were going to, you know, take over a space, most likely a, a, you know, school auditorium or something and have young people speak and talk about what their issues and then have poetry and live music that had to go online. So we actually developed um, a website that is a cub for people to submit, you know, their poems, their music, their videos, talking about the issues that are important to them. We ended up doing several youth curated Zoom panels where we had, you know, four or five young people talking about issues. Um, And then I expanded our radio show again, where we would invite some of those youth speakers to be on the radio, where it was a much more pointed and focused conversation, not just about the music. Oh, I see. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Right. I think back to myself as a as a young person and I can I can remember being certainly having frustrations with with what I saw, you know, like maybe my parents generation about how how they were run were running the world basically and and but I also re- don't remember really I I still I I mean honestly, I do this podcast, but I still struggle with like talking about this stuff and 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 putting that into words because i have you know i have frustrations but like and i have issues that i care about but it's it's still really hard you know even though i have tried to do better and and to learn to talk about these issues more so i guess i'm wondering you know the reason i say that is because i'm i'm just curious about what you've seen with these young folks talking about these issues that are important to them and and how how does that affect their thinking and how does it impact their lives? That, um, that, that's a tough question. I take a very invisible hand approach to working with the people that I work with. You know, my 
aspirational goal was really just to amplify their voices. And so there's very little consensus building. There's very little demand of compliance or editorial from me. I pretty much give them equipment and say, hey, this is yours, run with it, do what you want with it. So what I have observed, and that's, you know, from that vantage point, is them taking ownership of their narratives in ways, like you said, that has, we, I don't think we've seen to the degree that we have it now. You know, granted, you know, we're old enough to have seen the advent of the internet. We're old enough to have seen the creation of social media. But we're slowly starting to see, you know, what are the, you know, secondary, third, fourth, um, layers and tertiary, you know, outcomes of these new ways of communicating and sharing information. I'll admit that, you know, when we started Friends of Noise, a big goal was it was how do we get kids off their screens and into physical space where they're bouncing off each other and they're sharing ideas and they're seeing each other, not just through a little screen. And it was a bit depressing that suddenly everybody's doing live streaming and everybody's doing Zoom calls and we were unable to maintain that connection. But in a weird way, I think that it's allowed young people to maybe hear themselves a little better outside of the din of social media, you know, at least what we've been doing, you know. So, for example, you know, one of our first Speak Up, Seeing Out, and that was the series of young people where we would interview them. We had a 15, 17, and a 19-year-old. And it was so wonderful to see these three different ages and three different places of their academic careers, so to speak, you know. One person in the middle of high school, one person is a senior, and one person had graduated and was just had just finished their first year of, of college. Mm. And it was great to see them vibe together. You know, yeah. um, you know, there it was uh, multi-ethnic. They, you know, had some different issues, but it was great to hear, you know, the 18-year-old talk about, you know, economics and radical protesting, and then to hear the the you know, the younger one talk about how music was so important to her as she was finding her voice. So I love that what we've been able to do is start to make connections between young people and, you know, having them get real affirmation that's different than a like, you know, it's different than, you know, a button that's pressed, but to see the affirmation come from being able to look someone in the eye and to hear their voice and to see that smile and to see that kind of aha moment. So I'm really happy that Friends of Noise has been able to, on a smaller scale now because of the pandemic, continue to make those connections between the young people we work with. This kind of group of episodes that I'm working on now is about Portland. Portland has been in the news lately. You know, I, I've been talking to some of my friends who, you know, who live in Chicago, who live in New York, who live in LA. You mentioned that you're from New York. And, and so I was just curious, like, how long have you been in Portland kind of briefly and, and what brought you here? I was a latchkey kid growing up and my mom would send me to summer camps every summer to get me out of the city. And that developed a love of greenery, a love of nature, a love for the environment. I have a brother and sister and an uncle who lived in Oregon when I was in my teens. So I would come out here and spend summers with them as well and just fell in love with Oregon. I remember going to the country fair at 14 years old and mm. I had no idea what I was walking into. <laughs> but you know, I was open to it. You know, I, I'm a pretty freewheeling, open person. And when I, it was time for me to go to college, I said, I want to go to Oregon. You know, mm. I didn't want to stay in the East Coast. I felt like I wanted to go somewhere that it was far enough away that I wasn't going to have the capacity just or the ability just to run home just to do laundry. And I'd seen a lot of you know, people in my cohort when things got a little tough, 
you know, there are a bus trip home or an Amtrak ride home. So I wanted that separation. And so, yeah, so I moved out here, lived with my uncle for about maybe six months to a year. Then I moved downtown, went to Portland State, you know, bopped around between different jobs, you know, not having a real clear plan, just learning from life and, you know, trying to make do as best I could. And then I discovered Merrillish University and I found a Super 8 film camera and that Mm -hmm. led into the arts. And I've been fully ensconced in the arts ever since. And for a spell there, I got um, my advanced degree in becoming a teacher. So I became a teacher for the visually impaired. And that brought in working with young people, that brought in working with people with disabilities and understanding how, you know, we all have something to contribute. We just need, you know, accommodation. You know, just right now I wear sun, right now I wear glasses because my vision has gone bad. This doesn't make me disabled, but by certain measures, neither are they. So, right. how do we create accommodation? And that's why you know I think Friends of Noise has been a perfect landing spot for me because it has allowed me to draw upon the many different facets that brought me to Portland, and it's allowing me to thrive in working with young people, making accommodations for them. I'm working towards an artistic ecosystem that includes them and values them. So that's a little of my backstory. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful story. Helping build that up for for other young people so they can, you know, have access to some of that. I think it's that's really great. I think it's also powerful that I'm a black man and that I am demonstrating and modeling for them, no matter their race, no matter their gender, no matter their orientation, that you know, we're not a boogeyman. We're not what pop culture has deemed us to be. So for me, that's an important part of this also. You know, it's great to not just provide, you know, the technical issues and, the, and you know, this is an XLR cable versus this is this cable. But for them to see me represent as well, this is a caring human being who is really here just to serve and just to support. I think that's something that too many young people don't get to see. So I'm really proud about that as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a mostly white uh, suburb type community around here in Portland. And for me, seeing black men in, in roles like the one that you're in, I, I found that a bit through the arts. You know, I found that a bit in the jazz community, you know, not a lot, but but I think it was definitely important for me as a young person. And, you know, to see that you know, just because kind of my immediate surroundings were all folks that looked like me, you know, that was, it's very comfortable, obviously. But then also to go out into a wider world, you know, into, you know, for me as a young person, it was with jazz music and kind of some of the educational things like some jazz camps and other things where I, you know, got to see that bigger representation. So that was, that was a big thing for me too. And I think, you know, sometimes we, we talk about how you know, a more diverse representation in the arts or in any other field is is great for people of color. And that's true. It's also great for me, you know, as, as a white person, as a young person growing up, I think it's good for everybody. So, I, you know, I think that's, that's a really important part. And I'm, I'm glad you added that. Well, I wanted to ask you one more question to kind of, you know, bring this conversation to a close. And that is about Portland itself. You know, like if you're thinking about somebody who is not here in the city with us, what would you tell them about Portland, about what makes it what it is and, and you know, maybe what needs to change about it in order for it to come, you know, become that better version of itself that a lot of people are hoping to see here? 
It's interesting. If I had known Oregon's history in the context of race, of how there were sundown laws and you know, there were laws that allowed the beating of black people until they left the state. I don't know if I would have moved here if I'd known that when I was a younger person. You know, if I'd known that, you know, the city council here was dominated by, you know, white men almost clearly into the mid eighties, if not nineties, I don't know if I would have moved here. You know, coming from a place like New York where you know, Jews and Gentiles and Asian Americans and immigrants were everywhere. Portland is a very homogenized city. And I attribute that to its youth. You know, Portland is a very young town in relative to the other cities. And and I don't mean young being that, you know, it wasn't made or it wasn't incorporated until much later, but it wasn't pressed to evolve because of their laws that prevented diversity. And that diversity, like you said earlier, spurs different ideas is a catalyst for different thoughts and a growth. So I think in contrast, right now, Portland is going through some of those growing pains. Yeah. And those growing pains are necessary. And those growing pains may mean more crime. The growing pains may mean, you know, a redistribution of wealth and resources. Those growing pains are going to mean louder voices. Those things have to happen. You know, like I said, I grew up in a city where Stonewall was a riot. It was a riot. And because of that riot, men and women and people of all genders are getting closer and closer and closer to equality. You know, tenement laws and labor laws were a byproduct of people fighting and people being in unions in big cities who are, you know, fighting for the rights of their children not to have to work in sweatshops. Those things happen in big cities. And Portland is getting there in having to deal with these issues in a way that it hasn't dealt before because they were able to, you know, use things like the urban growth boundary, you know, and they were able to use, you know, certain, you know, redlining laws and able to use, you know, how they provided education resources in ways that definitely kept a lot of people out of those conversations. I wouldn't be here if I didn't love this city. You know, I wouldn't be here if I didn't think that I had something to contribute. And I'll be honest, I don't know if I could have started Friends of Noise anywhere else. You know, I mean, big cities have entrenched interests, you know, they have, you know, communities who are very protective and can be very insular and, you know, very racist in their own ways. You know, I grew up not far from Howard Beach where, you know, black people were killed and, you know, no one heard about it until, you know, it's too late, you know, or, you know, so mm-hmm. having said that, while Portland is far from perfect, I think that its youthfulness gives it the opportunity to grow. Does that make sense? So it's almost like, you know, it's yeah. like there's a lot of room to grow. Mm. You know, it is not so ensconced. It is not, you know, the infrastructure is not so baked in that there isn't room to grow. And I feel honored and blessed to be a part of that growth. I mean, look at someone like, you know, Cameron Witten or Makai Adams. There are so many black and brown people in Portland who are making a difference on their own terms. And they are not perpetually looking at a white gaze for support or for advocacy but they're saying, hey, how do we do this? How do we create this new system that's going to serve our community? Because the old systems haven't been doing it very well for, for years. So I feel honored to be a part of that development of, hey, how can we do it better? And how can we you know, make a difference? And how can we pass on a legacy that is not colorblind, 
but is a more inclusive the other way. So let me put it this way, another way. Sure. I think that the current Black Lives Matter movement has an opportunity to share the power and privilege that they have right now. And I understand that they haven't had this power and privilege in the past. And at times, you know, whenever we do get power and privilege, you want to hold on to it. And because we don't know what's going to dissipate, we don't know when the attention is going to turn another direction. But there are issues that black people, minorities, you know, people of color have been the canary in the coal mines to some degree. I think that if we can, you know, harness this energy, harness this power, harness this, you know, moment, I think we can advocate for things that'll benefit our brethren, no matter their race, no matter their creed, no matter their color. And whether that's talking about universal health care, whether it's talking about, you know, living wages, whether it's talking about demilitarizing or defunding the police, those are going to have impacts across the board. And I'm thrilled that a lot of black people have the mic now. And I'm not saying they need to relinquish the mic. They don't, I'm not saying they need to give up that space, but I am hoping that there is a way that they can, you know, hearken back to where Martin Luther King was before he was killed with looking at it as what's the people's movement and how do we share that power of acknowledging the injustice, acknowledging the oppression, but realizing that we're not the only ones who are being oppressed. We're not the only ones who are being subject to injustice. And if we can have some real structural change, it's going to benefit a lot of people and it could be real transformational. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with all of that. <laughs> I mean, I think that I think that one of the things that I've learned is that as we, you know, and and here's like a really f- uh, tiny example of just like when we make a arts event more accessible, you know, for folks maybe who have disabilities, like it becomes more accessible for everybody. Yes, right. And I think I've I've seen that happen. Like when we you know, when I've done that with my organization and I've seen other organizations do some of that work and make some of those improvements to what they're doing, it's like, it's better for everybody. It's like, why weren't we doing this before? Yeah. And I think that as as we talk about racial justice and we talk about inclusion and and, and how power is kind of wielded and and what it accomplishes here uh, in Portland, I mean, I think that's, that's a super important part of it, that, you know, that openness and that inclusion is going to be good for everybody. And so I yeah I completely agree with that and and it's it's great to see you doing that you know with friends of noise kind of at that that really early level with with young with young people young artists and people that are interested in like the you know the technical side of of music and the arts so so keep doing it and thank and, you and best of luck and and where can people learn uh, more about the organization and how can they how can they contact you and get involved appreciate that. Well, we have a website, um, www.friendsofnoise.org. It's actually in the process of being rebuilt right now. So the current one, it's a little underloved because I've been so focusing on the redesign. All of our core information is there. We're on Facebook. um, We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. And it's always just Friends of Noise, usually one word. We're on the radio, X-Ray FM, every Monday from 2 to 3. You can hear youth DJs um, talking and playing music that they want to share with people. Also, right now we're doing a concert series at some local parks that are socially distanced and Mm. people to wear masks. And we've got some PPEs and cleaning supplies. That's every Sunday from 3 to 5. And you can usually find information about that weekly on our Instagram and on our Facebook page. Andre? Thank you so much. I really appreciate talking with you. It's been it's been fun and and best of luck with all the things that you're doing. 
Douglas, thank you so much for having me. It was really a great conversation. Thanks so much, Andre. Be sure to visit Friends of Noise's brand new website. It's looking really nice, and it gives you all the information about this great nonprofit organization, including how to get involved and how to donate. If you appreciate the conversations you're hearing on More Devotedly, please subscribe. Give it a five-star rating on your podcast app and tell a friend about it. You can also head over to moredevotedly.com to learn more about Andre and all of my guests and to join the More Devotedly email list. We're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I produced this episode and composed and performed the music right here in Portland, Oregon. You are a good interviewer. I don't know if people <laughs> But you're a good interviewer. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. I am I am not going to edit that out. <laughs> what you're doing is beautiful. Can you do it more devotedly?